Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Uglani. We've explored a variety of approaches to training more healthcare workers to fill existing and predicted gaps on the Raise the Line podcast, as well as ways to reduce demand on the system through improving health. Today, we're going to come at this issue from a different angle and take a look at how generative AI might help fill the need for a wide variety of roles, from cardiologists to nutritionists to genetic counselors, and improve healthcare access and equity as a result. My guest is Munjal Shah, the co-founder and CEO of Hippocratic AI, a new startup that just raised $50 million from General Catalyst and Andreessen Horowitz to build a safety-focused large language model specifically for the healthcare industry. Munjal is a serial entrepreneur, startup advisor, and investor who has built and or helped build numerous other technology and AI startups. He has a master's in computer science focused on AI from Stanford and a bachelor's in computer science from the University of California, San Diego, where his senior thesis focused on the use of AI in the design of new therapeutics. So Munjal, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. So you have quite an impressive background, and I, we always like to ask our guests in their own words to describe what got them interested in the technology space, in your case, and then healthcare. Uh, you know, technology for me started very early. Um, I learned a program at age eight, which back then was pretty unusual, and just loved programming, loved video games. There's a guy across the street from me who worked for Atari at the time, and if you mowed his lawn, you got to play the newest games, and so he had the best lawn in the neighborhood because I was over there all the time <laughs> and uh, absolutely fell in love with technology at a very early age. Uh, healthcare was a different um, journey for me. I had a, a machine learning computer vision company called Like.com, L-I-K-E, that we sold to Google. And the very next day after we sold the company, I had chest pains and ended up in the ER. Hmm. Uh, my father had his first heart attack <clears throat> in his mid-40s. I was only 37 at the time. It didn't end up being a heart attack, but it was something pretty serious. And so I, I really got control of my health, lost 30, 40 pounds, um, actually took endocrinology classes at Stanford um, in the School of Medicine just for fun. Like I audited them and I loved it. I actually was like, man, had I done this before, maybe I, I would have become a doctor <laughs> instead of a computer <laughs> scientist. But um, and then spent the last 10 years, you know, running a uh, Medicare Advantage related company. And so just you know, these two things in my life have been two parts and they just happen to come together now and in building Hippocratic. That's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm sure you would have been a great doctor, but uh, I'm glad you've chosen the tech entrepreneur role because uh, you're obviously making a big impact in healthcare. So let's talk about Hippocratic AI because, you know, ChatGPT, large language models have been all everything everyone seems to talk about these days since they released in November of last year. Um, you're positioning Hippocratic AI as a safety-focused large language model, which acknowledges the concerns about using LLMs to provide people with medical advice. Can you tell us more about those concerns and how you're specifically addressing them and making your LLM different? Yeah. Look, we started with the name. <laughs> Hippocratic isn't the Hippocratic Oath. We next went to the tagline, do no harm. And then the third thing is we're going to be restricting the product when it comes out, which is it's not going to be able to do diagnoses. If you try to get it to do diagnoses, it's going to say, I'm sorry, I can't do diagnoses. And, you know, we'll try to make sure we put in all the checks, but you've used ChatGPT and, you know, you, it, it will tell you, I won't comment on certain things or I won't talk about certain things. And so there are ways to make these models kind of have the right safety elements to them. But then beyond that, there's a number of key features that, that we're building into the model um, to really allow it to be safe. But the first and foremost element is, you know, not focusing on diagnoses. I think people don't realize who are not in healthcare, how many other roles there are and how much labor we use doing a ton of other things. You know, 
I don't think American healthcare and the health of Americans is struggling because we are not diagnosing them well enough. It's struggling largely because once diagnosed, we're not able to affect the change in their overall health for largely chronic conditions. And I think that's the real opportunity. There's no diagnosis in that. It's, hey, reminding you to take your medications, reminding you to go in for that checkup, reminding you to go in for that procedure, um, making sure the kind of social determinants of health are done. You know, hey, do you have enough to eat today? Should we call the local food shelter and ask them to drop off some food to you? You know, do you need a ride to your appointment? That's why you didn't end up coming. Um, so I think that people outside of healthcare, I think, don't realize how much of healthcare is is everything that comes after the diagnoses. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of the themes we've been addressing on this podcast is is provider burnout because of all the ancillary things they're supposed to be doing, the administrative burden, which, you know, people know about, you know, they've experienced, many of our listeners experience daily, which is, you know, needing to submit billing codes, needing to submit health insurance authorization forms. And it seems, is that is that kind of the type of stuff you guys are tackling first? Like what is your yeah. uh, initial product going to look like? Well, let me let me back up and actually give you some of the features of how we're making it safe. And then I'll tell you kind of the first use cases. Yeah. Um, so there's a bunch of things we're doing to make it safe. First, we're training it on additional evidence-based content because we really want it to not just have the stuff that's on the internet. Because some of that's evidence-based on the internet. And some of it's how, you know, drinking almond milk, uh, you know, cured your heart disease, <laughs> which is just not true. And so you aren't you aren't crawling Dr. Oz's site, are you? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, th so we wanted to get evidence based content. The second thing we did was we wanted to certify the system. So we actually identified 114 medical certifications. These are the tests and certs that, you know, nurses go through and dentists go through and pharmacists go through and pharmacy techs go through and lactate consultants go through or genetic counselors to like get certified to be able to do that job in the real world. We're like, look, language models should have the knowledge to be able to pass those tests. And, and we show not only we passed them, but we passed them better than GPT-4 and actually many other models as well. So we wanted to make sure it was smart enough, right? It had the right knowledge um, and, and it had evidence-based knowledge. And then the second thing we said was, look, it's not enough to just be smart in in building a better healthcare large language model. And notice I say healthcare large language model, not medical large language model, because we're really focused on healthcare at large, not just medicine. In fact, we're less focused on medicine. But the second part was, hey, it's got to have good bedside manner. And I think that we came to realize that's not only it being empathetic, it's actually a major paradigm shift that occurs um, because of one new fact. So running a language model will cost about 18 cents an hour, okay? And actually that'll probably be five cents an hour in the next year. And that includes with like voice in, voice out, including voice recognition costs and other things. So now when you have a system that's that inexpensive, I can spend an hour talking to the patient about anything they wanna talk about. I can be talking to that vet about that battle in Desert Storm where he got injured and he wanted to share what really happened in his perspective and great. Because that's part of the the journey, the health journey for a lot of people is sharing kind of their own health history and what happened to them. Uh, and in today's world, you know, the nurse can't do that. Like, you know, she's got to get on the next phone call. <laughs> and so she'll be like, hey, I'm just calling to remind you to take your medications. And, you know, do you need a ride to your next appointment on, you know, on Tuesday? And then they're like, huh, you know, we have no patient engagement. We really need to work on patient engagement. I'm like, because we have no patient relationship because we had no time. And it's not their fault. But now with this thing, we have almost infinite time. So we need to rethink 
uh, what we can do with this. Like, so I, I call this bedside manner capital B, which is like, hmm. rethink the entire bedside process. Like when you have discharge instructions, why do I give you the whole week's worth of instructions at once? Because you can't remember them. Even if I write them down, you're like, well, uh, what was I, am I supposed to change my bandage? Like the whole bandage on Wednesday or on day three, or am I just supposed to like, why don't we just call you on day three and tell you exactly what to do on day three and day four? What is like, cause we can't afford it. Like we just don't have the bandwidth, but at 18 cents an hour, we absolutely can. And so, so the second thing is bedside manner. The third thing is we actually, there's a thing in large language models called RLHF. It's this process called, it stands for reinforcement learning with human feedback. It's actually what they use to go, most people believe to go from GPT-3 to chat GPT and what made it talk so well. It's basically humans grading the talking. And then you feed that back into the model. We said, great, but you know what? Can we use medical professionals to do that? And can we use them per function? So can we have genetic counselors do it for the cases where our system is trying to play the role of a genetic counselor? Can we have chronic care nurses do it for places where, you know, we're playing that like, and how about we don't even launch those roles, R-O-L-E roles until a super majority of those people say, Hey, this is ready to go. So we're actually letting the industry's health professionals themselves determine readiness of the system. And that's part of our commitment to, to all of this. And the last part is we're working with a bunch of healthcare organizations and actually putting up safety and governance committees and working very closely. Like our first release won't just be an open API for everybody to use. It's actually a, a more of a closed beta where we're working very closely with a number of health systems that have joined our founding partner program to just get it right and just make sure, you know, kind of nobody gets hurt in this process. So I'll, I'll pause there for a second and then I'm happy to talk about the use cases. Yeah, I'd like to, I mean, I could pull on any one of those points and threads, but the third one about, uh, you know, training the model based on specific roles and then having those people in those roles assess whether it's ready to go. I'm curious, you know, obviously you have, a, you know, investors have a lot of LPs or healthcare systems, so you probably have those great connections, but does that mean you're actively like contracting with, you know, 500 genetic counselors, for example, as a use case? Because one question we like to ask our guests too is how can our audience maybe get involved or contribute if they're interested? We will be kind of uh, recruiting folks to come on. Uh, we'll probably do it in kind of a an Uber app sort of way that you can do it on, on the side, on the beach, in, in between appointments, you know, and we'll pay. I mean, we won't ask you to do it for free, but we'll we'll pay people for their time to be able to give us those answers. But yes, we will be checking their certifications because we want to make sure we have people with that exact certification and that exact role in real life, you know, giving us the feedback. Um, and so we'll check the certifications. We'll get the right people in. I think we already have quite a number already working and uh, we'll just be adding, you know, many more as we, we work through this. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, and I've seen your benchmarks on your uh, on your site. Very impressive in terms of how your existing models already performed relative to GPT four and Palm and other other companies for you know healthcare specific certifications. You, you know, hopefully that'll address hallucinations. You know, what about the bias aspect of large language models? I'm curious. Do you have any any thoughts on that? Yeah, actually, on our site you can see we've actually run an initial set of bias testing hmm. um, and showed that we were less biased than GPT four. Um, and we did that by doing the following. We said, all right, let's identify an underrepresented group. Let's identify the healthcare issues that group has kind of uniquely or, or you know, is overrepresented in that group. And then let's assess the knowledge level that our system has on those things. Because if you don't know a lot about, you know, certain treatments and those treatments occur in a certain group, then you are going to end up 
not being able to treat that group as well. So we built that out. And then we built another whole set of questions that are just straight bias sort of testing questions. And we put that up there as well for folks to see. And I, I don't think we're done. I, I don't think we've done enough there, honestly, but we at least put that out there saying, hey, day one, right when we're starting, we're thinking about this, we're working on this, we're trying to make sure, you know, and this this brings me to like, actually the big idea here, which is we are not doing this just to say, oh, let's help health system XYZ save some money on their labor. That's not why I'm here. I'm not even here to say, hey, let's help health system XYZ fill their staffing gap. Okay, I'm here to get to what I call the idealized staffing. Honestly, I don't have a good word for this. So actually, if you do, <laughs> I'd love you to help me coin a term. But I, let's look at it this way. 51% of all Amer American adults have one chronic disease. Okay. 25%-ish have two or more. Do we provide a chronic care nurse to all 25% or even all 51% to help them manage? No. Could we? No, we can't afford it. Not even if we could afford it. Are there that many chronic care nurses or nurses, period? No, like the math doesn't work. And so part of our vision is we want to really solve health equity for everybody. We need a system that's not a zero sum game, right? Right now we're, we're taking from Peter to pay Paul, so to speak, right? Like there's only so many nurses to go around, but now we can have an infinite number almost. And we can keep all the nurses we have. In fact, we should. We may have them do more physical things that the, the language models can't do, but what we should do is utilize our nurses in a more effective way at you know the top of their license and then use the language models to handle all of the kind of more mundane activities that can be done. Uh, you know, think of pre-op questions. Like pre-op questions are fairly mundane, right? Oh, can I eat before? When should I stop taking this? You know, uh, am I supposed to shave my leg before the knee surgery or will you shave it? Like, you know, but that takes a lot of time today. Um, there's a lot less risk in pre-op questions than post-op questions. But what would happen in the world if we could truly have 30 million nurses? How much would America's health improve? That's the question I want to ask. And that's the vision we're after. How do you use this technology to deliver a, a whole nother tier of kind of you know SLA to use a computer science term, but service level agreement, you know, and just than we've never seen before and we could never afford before. And and that's how we solve health equity. Um, because then then we'll have a surplus and we'll be able to help every single group and we won't just be taking from one group to another group. And so I think that's what we're excited about. And um, you know, talking about hallucinations, look, the best answer on hallucinations is to pick the use cases that where hallucination is less of an issue. Right. And just touching on all that, that's why we're focused. Actually, one of our first use cases is the chronic care nurse. Hmm. You know, and we're saying, hey, look, that's mostly a follow-up activity. It's not typically a diagnosis activity. Um, it's about booking appointments. It's about just having an open-ended conversation where maybe a senior will bring up something that they wouldn't have brought up otherwise. Um, it's about checking in more regularly and, you know, even some education, right? Well, you know, you need to take that medication. Why? Oh, it makes me dizzy. I don't like it. Well, you know, here's why. And like, helping to, to motivate uh, some of that. So totally. No, I, I love all that. I mean, you know, on this podcast, again, we've talked about, 
you know, how we need to raise line, strengthen our healthcare system, get more clinicians trained. And, you know, we, we were saying, let's get to, you know, the WHO estimates, I think a shortage of 18 million by 2030 worldwide of healthcare right. professionals. And you're taking that to the next level of everyone having their own personal kind of concierge, uh, similar to, you know, our, our previous guest we had in the podcast, Sal Khan, uh, you know, gave that TED talk about uh, having everyone having a personal tutor. That's, you know, we've, we've all been talking about this, you know, ever since the smartphone came out, everyone could have a personal tutor, but it was different where you still have to be very self-directed and use an app to learn something. Whereas here with an AI kind of LLM that maybe pushes content out to you and knows you personally, uh, everything about you, it's a totally different era of user interface and computing. Yeah. Uh, we call it healthcare in every home. Yep. You know, so we just, we should have healthcare in every home. Everybody should be able to have it in their language at any time they want. You know, we're not calling it a doctor in every home because we don't think it's ready to be a doctor, but we do think some of these other things are, are quite useful. There's a ton of things we can do that are not diagnoses. I mean, even explanation of benefits and billing. I mean, have you ever really understood your healthcare bill? <laughs> like, I, mean, I work in the industry and I, I still can't understand the damn bill. Yeah. And then when I call up about it, I don't always get the, the same answer. If I call up twice and talk to two different, you know, uh, customer service reps about it. Uh, but, you know, these language models can memorize the 200 page plan detail on every single plan in the country. And it can reason across it and it can say, yes, you know, that would be covered in this plan, but not covered in your old plan. And I mean, you probably saw the GPT-4 demo where he reasoned across the tax code. I mean, if they can reason across the tax code, these <laughs> things can definitely reason across the health policies and, and uh, reimbursement uh, things. So anyways, that's kind of what, what we're looking at is, you know, how do we use this fundamentally to just massively increase healthcare capacity, not just to fill the gap, but to take it to a level where we truly improve outcomes. Yeah, totally. For, for not just the top few most expensive, right? Right now you give chronic care nurses, you just give them to the top two, 3% most expensive patients. Yeah. Well, what about the other 48% that have a chronic disease? Oh, well, we don't have enough nurses, but really it's also ROI negative by and large at, at $90 an hour to, to call them. It yeah. has to be a different cost. Totally. I'm, I'm also curious. So, so again, it's early days and you know, you, there's a lot you can just do with single mode, like text-based large language models. Are you guys already exploring or thinking about multimodal for your LLM? Uh, and if so, what are some of the use cases you're thinking of? Well, so there's two ways you can say the word multimodal. One is you're inputting images to be able to do some sort of analysis of an X-ray or some sort of imaging. We're not doing that. We think again, that's, you need that for diagnoses. You don't really need that for most of these, but we are doing both text in and out and voice in and out. Mm. We think the voice in and out is going to be particularly important for dealing with the senior population. Yep. Um, and, you know, voice is more convincing, meaning if I want to, you know, you can compel somebody to act better when you're talking to them than you can when you're chatting with them. Like, that's just the truth of it. But it's typically so expensive that we've all moved to these other mediums. Um, the other thing about voice that we can do we're actually building what's called a clip model. And a clip model is a form of a large language model that has two inputs to it. It has both the text coming in and it has another file format, in this case, a WAV file. And so we'll actually put both in so that it can tell the difference between, you know, my back hurts and my back hurts hmm. because they should respond differently, right? And so the WAV file will show that intonation. The speech to text won't show any difference between those two statements I just made. And so it's only with the development of a clip model will we get tone detection and then basically learn how to respond properly to the tone. 
Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. And and for sure, the, the ways you can get health information, meta health information from voice, we've, we've covered before. We've had companies like Suki and Ellipsis and The Bridge on, on the podcast in the past. And that, that actually leads to my next question, which is, Things are changing every week, really every day. There's new models coming out. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, auto GPT was like a big thing. And, uh, you know, nobody really knows what, what's going to shake out over the next couple of months, let alone years. Um, the big tech companies are all coming into this, right? Microsoft is huge with, with Nuance, with Epic. Um, you're a, a very well-funded, well-backed company with incredible talent, how do you kind of see the ecosystem shaking out? Those are big competitors, Apple, Microsoft, Google, all trying to do the same thing. How do you see like a Hippocratic kind of emerging or an Abridge or a Ellipsis as well in, in a very crowded space? Yeah, so uh, good news in healthcare-focused LLMs. It's not that crowded. Hmm. <laughs> There's not a lot of people building them. And like, go out and try to get an API today that's a healthcare-focused LLM. There's not one actually that you can buy and and use. So I think that it's... It's early. Um, but the number one thing is specialization. We're just getting really, really specialized. Um, you'll see us put out some benchmarks against, you know, some of the current uh, healthcare focused LLMs. Um, there's only one really. Um, and But most people don't realize that that one is MedPom1 and MedPom2. It actually wasn't trained on any additional healthcare data, by the way. Hmm. Most people don't know this. It was instruction tuned, they call it, for the USMLE. You know what that means in real life? That means they sent it to Princeton Review for USMLE because, <laughs> you know, it's not that they gave it new content. They just said, oh, we're going to really teach to the test, so to speak. So nobody has trained one of these yet. We'll probably be the first one in market. But you're right. There's some big guys out there. The nuanced stuff is for ambient listening. It's not it's there isn't a default large language model thing. The uh, announcement from our friends at um Epic was to use a generic GPT-4, GPT-3.5. I don't know, remember which one they announced, but uh, to do it. So nobody's built a vertical one. Nobody's thought through things like bedside manner to get it right. Nobody's thought through things like don't do batch mode, do just-in-time uh, delivery of information post an operation, like we talked about earlier. You know, like there's a very different set of features actually to make this effective. I think that in the end, we're just at the beginning and we're just starting and um, and we're the only ones doing RLHF with these professionals and saying we're not shipping till it's ready. Nobody else has said that. And as far as I know, they're not planning to do that at the moment. So I, I think our safety focus hopefully will differentiate us as well. Um, but uh, they, they're focused the other way. Actually, a lot of times they seem to be very focused on doing more diagnoses. MedPalm 2's team launched the ability to upload, you know, putting in imaging. Hmm. I'm like, what, what, why are you doing that? Like, you're, you're going more in the direction of diagnoses, right? Like, uh, I'm like, I don't think this stuff's safe enough to do diagnoses with. Like, yeah. I really don't. Yeah, and that's, I mean, again, you've been in tech space for a while. There was the SaaS wave and then vertical SaaS became, you know, the, the, the way to win. Vertical AI is kind of what you guys are doing and it seems like a, a really thoughtful approach. Um, I want to be respectful of your time, so I only have a couple other questions. The first is, as you know, Osmosis is a teaching company. We do health education. We have an audience of millions of current and future healthcare professionals, including genetic counselors and critical care nurses and chronic disease nurses. So there's two questions on this. One is, if we could teach any group of people anything related to what you're doing at AI, uh, large language models, what topics would you want us to build, whether it's a video or a course, and, and why? Hmm, interesting. Um 
I think that there's, you know, looking at burnout in this industry um, that happened really because of the pandemic, I think there's a very unique opportunity to almost create a, a new um, way to use ChatGPT to augment and reduce kind of the effort in your job for all healthcare professionals. So there's kind of our notion of, hey, that this chronic care nurse will just reach out automatically. That's one level. And then there's the you know, large language model as your uh, mini me, <laughs> meaning in the sense of like being able to help you with certain tasks, aid certain tasks. And I think people need to just even know like when you use it, how would you ask it? What would you put in the prompts? What things do you need to do to get the right result? There, there is quite a technique, right? To actually navigating and utilizing a large language model. And there's a technique to doing it well for healthcare. And so, and even when ours comes out, um, you know, you, you will probably also need to still interact with it correctly, um, or at least, you know, with some additional skills, like the early days when search came out, right? We all had to learn how to use the search engine properly. And th there was actually a skill that was developed. Now it's all second nature to us. We don't even remember that we learned a skill, but I, I think there is a skill then to use these and then to remember to use these at the right time um, so that you can save time and, and hopefully, uh, reduce burnout in this uh, in this sector. So I, th I think that there's just a lot of opportunity to increase productivity and, and frankly, help people just have less burnout. The second last question is, uh, you know, a decade ago, I was where you are in Palo Alto, and I was uh, listening to a talk by Vinod Kosla, who famously said 80% of what doctors do will be obviated in the next, I forgot what he said, decade or 20 years, something there. It got picked up got a lot of flack for that basically because people misinterpreted it as saying 80% of doctors won't be needed in 10, 20 years, which right. is not what he was saying. Clearly not what you're saying as well. What advice would you give to our audience of future healthcare professionals about kind of just pursuing their career? Like should somebody be a radiologist in this day and age or, you know, what should they be doing and thinking about basically general career advice too, do you have for them? I really like to not give advice. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned it. It's just something I don't do. Um, so uh, I don't know that I understand enough about what happens here, but I would just say, I think with each new technology, the statements of how it's going to, you know, destroy the past are just always exaggerated <laughs> and never really quite come true the way we thought they were going to come true. And so I think for some reason, with generative AI, but with a lot of technologies, people just want to take the limit of X as it goes to infinity and be like, this is what's going to happen. And when you look historically, people's predictions are super inaccurate, <laughs> like super inaccurate. And I don't know why everybody gets all, you know, uppity about it. When if you look historically, almost every single one of these things had a twisted turn and did not turn out like we thought it was going to turn out. Yeah. And I think we can't predict this at all. I mean, does does the world need any less pilots now that we have autopilot in planes? Like, nope, <laughs> didn't happen. <laughs> yep. You know, so, you know, and we all thought, oh, self-driving cars are going to eliminate every truck driver in the country. Mm, I don't know. That kind of didn't work. So uh, I, I think that there are real benefits this is going to bring, but they're not the portends that other people have put out there just aren't, it, they ain't going to happen that way. They never do. There's always some major twist. Um, but I don't know why people can't recognize that they were wrong like the other five times and they still prognosticate the sixth time as if, oh, well, not, but this time I know for sure. I'm like, hey, you don't know anything. 
<laughs> yeah, it reminds me of really the Mark, Mark Twain quote, which is, you know, rumors of my demise have been greatly exaggerated. So I, I think that's I know, the case. Yeah. What I was trying to remember, but yeah, I mean, let the cards play. We we still need to understand this technology. We still need to understand where it goes. I think we all are excited about it. That's genuine interest there, but hey, there's a long road here. We don't really understand it, uh, where it's going to end up. Would you have predicted that a lot of online marketing was going to move from AdWords to influencers? Like, like no, that that was like a brand new thing that just emerged. Like, yeah. So now there's a whole job category called influencer that was not a job before. So I don't know. Things change. Yeah. No. One reason I love having guests on who are you know CEOs running companies uh, is that there's another quote I love quotes as Michael knows. Uh, which is the best way to predict the future is to create the future. So why not just you know go ahead and start building? And that's that's something I like to encourage our audience to do is join companies like Hippocratic if there's openings and, and start contributing. We are hiring um, certain uh, folks on the clinical side as well as folks on, on obviously the computer science side. Manjal, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today and, and more importantly for the work you're doing to uh, hopefully reduce burnout among our audience over the coming uh, years. Awesome. Hey, thank you for having me. With that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.